Well, I wanted to divide up Daniel chapter 9 into two pieces, mainly because I think his prayer in the first 19 verses is worth looking at, and I hope that was a fruitful exercise last week, but also because I wanted to deal with the prophecy that comes to him, the vision brought by the angel Gabriel. I wanted to deal with that separately and hopefully bring a little bit of clarity to a controversial and oftentimes very confusing subject. So this morning we'll look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. Let me read this for us, once again with a reminder that this is the very word of the living God. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Again, so ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. May he write it upon our hearts this morning. Let's pray as we come before the word. Our glorious God, our Father in heaven, now we ask that you would speak clearly to us through your word. Bless this time as we come before it. Fulfill the promise that you've made, that your word goes out and does not return to you void, instead accomplishing what you purpose for it instead successful in the things for which you send it. Open our eyes to see, open our eyes to hear the things that you have for us this morning, and in doing so, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we ask all of this in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, again, last week the focus was on Daniel's prayer, lessons, from it, a model for us in our own prayers. And we saw that prayer is more than just asking for things and and getting answers from God. 
as wonderful as those answers are. Prayer also involves going before God and adoring Him, giving Him praise, confessing our sins to Him, declaring to Him our thanks, our gratitude for His work for us, pouring out the, the very cares and concerns, the deep concerns of our hearts, not unlike the psalmist. So we can't forget that our God is a God who answers prayer. Can't forget that wonderful truth. Ask and you shall receive. However, often his answers are not what we expect. <laughs> They're very different. Just a simple example. 13, 14 years ago, I was desperately looking for work and I had a thought that you know, my skills might translate well into uh, a small banking kind of situation, working with small uh, companies and their owners, helping them with advice and guidance and planning and the things that I had done for so many years in a big company. I had no banking experience. So I thought, how do I get in? I'll apply for a teller job somehow. That seems to be the appropriate entry-level way to get your foot in the door, and it, quite frankly, beat stocking shelves at Walmart, which is what I was doing at the time. But I applied for several teller openings, and nothing. Nothing happened. Now, how I ended up at Evangelical Christian Credit Union where I'm now at, at Ministry Partners, that's a long story. But what I learned pretty soon after getting the job at ECCU and becoming an underwriter for church loans, analyzing their requests, do they qualify, should we give them a loan, is that the work is a lot like what I wanted to do for banks, <laughs> except now working with churches and ministries and schools and whatnot. It was a long, convoluted, and sometimes very frustrating road to get there, but when I look back on it, it was an answer to prayer. Unexpected, but an answer nonetheless. That's how God works sometimes. We ask for things and we think we know what it is, and he gives us an answer that we go, well, I'm not so sure. And then over time, we realize, yes, that really was a better answer than my request. And I bring that up because I think Daniel's answer here from God in verses 20 to 27 of chapter 9 is very similar. Daniel's prayer focuses on Jerusalem. The Babylonians have been defeated. He knows, if, we, if you recall the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah, he knows that at the end of 70 years, the Babylonians are going to be punished by God. He sees that happening. He anticipates the 70 years being over and the opportunity to return to Jerusalem. So he prays for that to happen. That's what Daniel is praying for in the first 19 verses of the chapter. Lord, have mercy on your people and on Jerusalem, the city that is called by your name. And so God provides an answer, starting in verse 20. For Daniel's people, the Israelites, and for the holy city, it says in verse 20. But this answer isn't what Daniel was exactly asking for. It goes beyond what he was asking for. It goes beyond the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem, ultimately stretching out through history to the coming of and the amazing work of the prophesied anointed one, the Hebrew word Messiah. God has something in mind far beyond what Daniel is asking for. 
And what I want to do this morning is, is two basic things. The first <laughs> is try to make sense of this prophecy of the 70 weeks as best as I can. 77s is what it is literally, but often taken as 70 weeks, which isn't a, an appropriate way to look at it. So try to make sense of that. If we can do that, then try to understand some lessons for what it means for us. So the heavy lifting at first, and then hopefully we'll get to some lessons that are meaningful for us and practical for us today. Let me begin by walking through the text and what's going on here. We've got this wonderful little section in verses 20 to 23, where Gabriel the angel is sent by God to respond to David's prayer. This is the second time Gabriel has been sent to Daniel. The first was back in chapter 8, verse 16. And we, we see in this personal visitation by Gabriel the, the love that God has for Daniel and a great desire that God has to communicate his plans to Daniel and have those communicated to God's people, including us today. And we know Daniel is well-loved. There are places in Scripture where uh, God is pronouncing judgment, and he says, even if Daniel was there, he would only save himself. Daniel is a man well-loved by God. And so this is a very special, wonderful thing that God is doing in giving this prophecy through an angel in person to Daniel. And then in 24 to 27, we have the vision itself. In this case, the vision doesn't come with an explanation. This is what the things mean. Just the vision. Consider the word and understand the vision, says Gabriel. So we will do our best to consider it and understand it this morning. The framework is 77s or 70 weeks. And it's a decree about Daniel's people and about the holy city, about the Israelites and about Jerusalem. And it says in verse 24 that this decree is going to accomplish six things. It'll finish transgression. It will end sin. It will atone for iniquity and sin. It will bring in everlasting righteousness. It will seal up vision and prophet or prophecy. And it will anoint a most holy place. This vision, this decree is going to accomplish those six things. And this is really the heart of this vision. This is where we have to focus our attention. The point of this decree is that those six things would be accomplished. So everything we understand about what's going on here has to be understood in light of those six goals, those six purposes of the decree. The 70 weeks, the 77s, begins with a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. And then we have our first puzzle. (laughs) There's a 7 weeks and a 62 weeks. And depending on how you read the Hebrew, how you structure it grammatically, and people get into the, the debate of where to put a comma in this. And remember, Hebrew did not have punctuation. <laughs> it was just letters following one after the other, without spaces even, as it was written. This is complex. Depending on how you view the structure, the punctuation, either the 7 and the 62 are separate, or they are a, a, a combined thing that um, complete a, a time 
together. Why they're mentioned as 7 and 62, we don't really know. The problem that people are trying to figure out is, is what to do with the anointed one, someone who appears at the end of the seven weeks and also at the end of the 62 weeks. Are these two separate anointed ones? Or are they the same anointed one? If they're the same, then the 69 has to be one period, 7 plus 62. If they're different, then you can divide them up into 7 and 62 separately. The, the prevailing consensus among most good scholars is that these belong together for various grammatical and other reasons. The most common view is that the 69 is one period and that the anointed one is one person. So during this 69-week period, the city will be rebuilt. It will have squares, it will have a moat, but it will be rebuilt and occupied, it says in verse 25, in a troubled time. At the end of that period, the anointed one is cut off, which is a metaphor for being killed. We read in verse 26, the anointed one is cut off. Also, at the end of that time, a prince of the people to come will destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and its sanctuary, that's the temple, and it will come like a flood and bring desolation. Then he, we'll come back to who he is, a he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of that, he will put an end to sacrifice and suffering, it says in verse 27. Also there, on the wing, and I think this is a word that we might want to think of as extremity, something coming at the edge, on the wing of abominations will come someone who makes things desolate, And this desolation will continue until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. A lot going on. But in other words, someone's going to come along to bring about desolation, and that desolation is going to continue until the decreed end of its time. That's complicated stuff going on in there in just a few short verses. And I spent spent a fair amount of time looking at different interpretations, different ways to interpret things, different ways to figure out what the 77s means. Most people want to figure out some sort of timetable for this. 77s, 70 weeks of years, 490 years. Let's figure out when it starts and when it ends. The problem is not one thing fits. There's not one solution that fits perfectly or really very well when it comes right down to it. Here's what we know. The end of the, of the period of time is when the anointed one is cut off. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. He's cut off. He's killed. We know when that is. Well, we know about when it is. It's sometime around 30, maybe 33, maybe 31 A.D. 490 years before... 30 A.D. is 460 B.C. Or 490 years before 33 A.D. is 457 B.C. There's no event associated with either one of those years. There's something close. There's a decree by King Artaxerxes that's related to Jerusalem. We read about that in Ezra 7, 12 to 26. 
But that decree comes right between the 460 and the 457. Nothing adds up. The other problem is Artaxerxes' decree about Jerusalem is the wrong decree. There are seven proposals that I found for which decree to pick <laughs> about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Seven. I won't bore you with all of them. Seven different decrees that begin the 77s. All of them referenced in scripture. They date from 605, the decree to take some of the young men from Jerusalem to Babylon, and the latest one is 445 B.C. All these options are cases where people are trying to make these dates add up, the 490-year time span. My conclusion at the end of all this is that the 77s is not meant to communicate to us exactly 490 years. It's a long period of time, but it's not meant to be exact. It's symbolic. It's 7 times 7 times 10, three perfect numbers multiplied together. And I think it means something very, very simple. 77s continues until the time period it represents is over. The 77s is going to continue until the six goals in verse 24 are accomplished. 77s just means it's, it continues until it's done. And my backup for that is Matthew 18. <laughs> Peter asks, how many times should I forgive someone who asks for forgiveness? Seven times? And Jesus says 70 times, seven times. And none of us believe that if someone asks for forgiveness 490 times, on the 491st time, we don't have to forgive them. That's absurd. Jesus is saying, what he's saying is, as many times as it takes, as many times as they ask for forgiveness, you give it to them. That's our, the two, the two things go together. I hope that makes sense. As many times as it takes, forgive as many weeks as it takes to accomplish the six goals. So the 490 is approximate, it's figurative, but it's not meant to be taken exactly literally. So how long will the 77s of Daniel be? As long as it takes. <laughs> as much as is needed to accomplish those six goals. The 77s are decreed to accomplish those six goals. And that frees us up, that realization frees us up to understand the prophecy using what we know about the Bible. We can kind of step back from calculating years and decrees and dates and just look at the Bible, look at history, and try to understand the prophecy through that lens. I think, and I'm quite confident in this, that the decree, the decree that begins the 77s is Cyrus's decree in 538 B.C., one year in the future from Daniel's vision here in chapter 9. That's confirmed by Isaiah in chapter 44, verses 23 to 28, in Isaiah 45, verse 13, and in Ezra 4, verse 12, where Cyrus is the one named in Scripture who's going to give the decree for the people to return. So, now we can look at the 69 weeks. And if we think about it, from the time of Cyrus's decree to the time of the Messiah, the Anointed One, 
that is a time of trouble for Jerusalem, is it not? The whole period of time is a time of great trouble. Israel has no king. They're ruled by the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Seleucids. The Maccabees rebel for a short period of time. Then come the Romans. They hate the Romans. The city is indeed rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. A greater temple is built by Herod, who does great works in the city as well. Jerusalem, by the time of Herod, by the time Jesus was born, Jerusalem was a beautiful city with a beautiful, glorious temple, a magnificent structure. But there's trouble. It's a time of trouble. The Romans rule. David's son does not rule. Where is the promised Messiah? When is his coming? This is what the people are asking for. Well, he comes at the end of the troubled time of 69 weeks. He comes, but he's cut off. He's killed. All those around him abandon him. He has nothing, it says. He's put to death on the cross in a most cruel way. A cursed death. The end of the 69 weeks is itself a, a drawn-out period. Not just tied to the exact year when Jesus comes or when Jesus died. This ending of the 69 weeks takes place over a period of time because also at the end of the 69 weeks is a period when the prince of the people to come, the Romans, destroys the city and its sanctuary. And we know when that happened, 70 A.D., So there's the simple structure of what's going on here. Titus, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, is the flood that comes upon the city and brings great desolation with it. These are the events that fit perfectly with the content of the prophecy. Forget the years, just look at what the content says. And here's what we also know. During this time, the Anointed One, the He of, verse 27, makes a strong covenant with many. This is the new covenant. He does this for one week. He does it halfway through, it says, for half the week. I think, this is just me speculating, I think this has to do with the time, the amount of time that Jesus lived and walked upon the earth. We know he was about 30 when he began his ministry. And his ministry lasted about three years. That's about half of 70, which is the normal lifespan of a human being. He was cut off halfway through. But his whole work from the time of his birth to the time of his death and resurrection was the work of establishing a covenant. Because he kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled all of righteousness. And then he went as the willing, atoning sacrifice, once and for all. He makes a covenant with many for one week. The problem with tying these things to years is now you have to say that the covenant only lasts seven years. Well, that doesn't work. It's an eternal covenant. It's just the last of the 70 weeks. One of the writers called it a jubilee week. It symbolizes the last stage of bringing about the six of the 24 goals, uh, six of the goals in verse 24. 
this strong covenant, this new covenant, is vital for accomplishing the six goals of verse 24. It's the new covenant made in the Messiah's blood that does this. Think about this. It's the new covenant that finishes transgression. It's the new covenant that ends sin. It's the new covenant that atones for iniquity and sin. It's the new covenant that brings everlasting righteousness. It's the new covenant that seals vision and prophecy. I'll get to that in a minute. It's the new covenant that anoints that which is truly most holy. It's a process that's already begun in the life and work of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. But it's being completed, it's being continued and completed in the spread of the gospel, in the growth of the church, and in the personal individual sanctification that takes place in the heart of each and every believer. Meanwhile, to deal with the latter part of verse 27, desolations continue. On the wing or extremity of desolations, either sin in general or the abominations of 70 AD in particular, or both, as a consequence of this, comes one who makes desolate. In history, I think that's Titus. I think it has to be. But I also think Titus is kind of a shadow or a type of all the desolators, of all the evil men, of all the antichrists that come until the end. Because this continues. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The decreed end, I think, is the last day when all stand before God and are judged. So we're in that last week. We're seeing those six goals accomplished. We're engaged in spiritual warfare with those who would bring about desolation. Did you read about the murders in Kenya of the Christian college students? Picked out, separated from the Muslims, and killed on the spot. The desolation continues. And we pray that the Lord would come quickly and put an end to this desolation. So as I was reading through different commentaries, I came across some summaries of how to think of this 77s and the goal of accomplishing the six things. One writer said, or one writer compared it to a cosmic war, a war between God and his enemies that's brought to an end through the Anointed One and the coming Judgment Day. Powerful way to think about the 70 sevens. Another pointed out that the 77s is part of a covenant prophecy in answer to a covenant prayer. If you read Daniel's prayer, it's a covenant prayer. Remember the covenant you made with us. Remember the covenants. We, for, we broke your covenant. You're doing what you said you would do when we broke your covenant. Now remember your covenant as well and remember your people and restore them as you have promised to do. So that's a covenant prophecy that's looking to the end of the old covenant, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and the inauguration of the promised new covenant, as well as completing all that the new covenant is given to accomplish. So this is a covenant prophecy. The old going away, the new coming in. Remember what Daniel was reading, Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant with you. And then another pointed out that probably a lot of what's going on here is that the 70 years in exile in Babylon did not result in the people of Israel repenting of their sin. Who's the one repenting? One guy, Daniel. We, and he's doing that as a prophet and as a representative of the people, but it's still just Daniel. And so this writer's point of view is that God is extending their punishment sevenfold. Seven times seventy. So this seventy times seven equals or refers to a, an extended time of punishment at the end of which God is going to atone for his people's sin through the death of that anointed one. The city is going to be destroyed, the temple is going to be destroyed, and desolation will continue until the end. During that extended period of punishment is an extended period to repent, given to God's people. Will they take it? Will they take advantage of it? It's part of the question that should linger in our minds. Too many of them do not, and they reject the Messiah when he comes. So I want to finish this up by looking at some lessons tied to these, these three ideas. The cosmic war between God and his enemies. Well, that involves us, too, and we need to remember that. God's people today still do. In fact, it's promised to us throughout Scripture. We still do suffer persecution. If you doubt it, look at the news, day after day and week after week. And we engage in personal spiritual warfare as we battle with our own sin and the temptations that go with it. But what we need to remember is God wins. God always wins. Jesus says to his disciples, you will suffer persecution. Do not fear. I have overcome the world. This is Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah. We do battle with sin, but our sins are covered. Our sins are paid for. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth. For those of you who are here, recall the topic of the sermon on Friday evening. Our sins are nailed to the cross with Christ. They're removed from us. The penalty is paid. It's done. It's gone. God wins. There's a spiritual battle. We're involved in it now. But God wins in and through Christ, our Savior. This covenant prophecy has six goals. And the fulfillment of those six goals only makes sense in the church and in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the church. Because it's only in Christ that transgression is finished. It's only in His obedience. And that obedience that's credited to our account by grace and through faith. It's only in the sanctifying work of the Spirit in us. It's only in that final glorification that transgression is finished. It's only in Christ that sin is put to an end. Again, that happened on the cross. Sin was defeated. Sin was killed. Sin was punished. It's only in Christ that atonement for iniquity is is accomplished. 
because he is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Atonement's been made and it's been made once and for all. There's no need for any more sacrifice. He put an end to it in his life and death and resurrection. It's finished. He's done it. Only in Christ is there any hope of everlasting righteousness. It's Christ who rose from the dead, who lives and rules and reigns forever. And because of that, his people will also rise from death to eternal life, to rule and reign with him in everlasting righteousness. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears. This is being accomplished now, and it will finally be accomplished at the last day. Only in Christ are visions and prophecies sealed. The meaning, the meaning of sealed here is not ended. The meaning of sealed here is ratified. The seal of approval, the good housekeeping seal of approval. In Jesus Christ, the, the anointed one, we have the apex of all of prophecy, the whole point of all of prophecy and its fulfillment. He's the one, the seal is placed upon him. This is the one about whom all this prophecy has been made. God's prophecies are vindicated in the work of Christ and in the successive work of the church and growth of the church through the gospel. And it's only in Christ that there can ever be an anointed, most holy place. Right now, that's in you and me. The living temple of the living God, Paul says in Colossians. Peter repeats it as well. Built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That holy place is under construction. The church is not complete yet. But it will be completed. And at the last day, heaven and earth will be transformed. And we will enter into eternity with God. It's only in Christ that there's an anointed holy place for all time. This is the covenant promise of God to us. This is the covenant fulfillment of the new covenant. But what about that 70 years of exile? The people did not repent. A sevenfold extension of that. It's more time to repent, more time to turn to God. It did not happen on any sort of a grand scale. But with the new covenant, in Christ comes true repentance as men and women and children around the world. See the reality, the horror, and the wickedness of their sin. Hear the good news of salvation offered in Jesus and turn to him in repentance and faith. We have an extended period of time, an extended 70th week, a jubilee week, whatever you want to call it, that's giving time for all men everywhere to come to repentance and faith. The opportunity is there. Will they take it? Desolation and destruction are coming. They came at the end of the extended period of trouble for the Jews. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple, stone by stone, broken down so that no stone remains on another. To this day, that is true. But that pales in comparison to the destruction that is coming. Now, 
is the time of salvation. Now is the time of repentance. Now is the time for faith. Now is the time to turn to and believe in the Son. For your faith and hope and trust in he who is dead but is now alive, as we have read from Revelation, raised from the tomb on that glorious day that we celebrate today. The one who's coming again to judge the living and the dead. This world and its kingdoms is coming to an end. His kingdom will have no end. He who has an ear, let him hear, and let him repent of his sins, and let him believe in Jesus. Those who believe already, <laughs> let them rejoice and sing, and give praise and thanks, and give a life of humble service to the risen, conquering King, the Anointed One, Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we do look forward to the day when Christ returns, and with your people of all time, we pray that that day might come quickly. But we also pray that you would accomplish your work and that you would cause the church to grow and extend and expand throughout the world, that men and women and children of all tongues and tribes and nations would bend the knee and turn to Christ in repentance and faith, that you would bring the full harvest of your people in, We pray that that, again, would happen quickly. We pray also that you would use us as your tools, as your instruments, as your mouthpieces, in bringing the good news to those around us. May we be found faithful. May we be found ready. We don't always have the words in our heads and in our hearts, but we trust that you will give us the right things to say at the right time. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for Christ. Our Lord, risen, resurrected from the grave, the firstfruits for all of us who die, look forward to an eternity in heaven with you, with him, with all the saints. Again, Father, may that day come quickly. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.